He's got a beautiful backswing. That's, oh, he got all of that one. Oh my gosh. That is amazing. Lay up with an iron into the hazard. Well, that wasn't quite what I meant, you know. What's good, everyone? Welcome into a very special episode of the 73rd Hole Podcast. Taylor Williams here, hosting with you today. No Sam Humphreys or Jim Woodward. The, the occasion being is that there will not be a whole lot of uh, either me or anyone talking today. We will be going back and highlighting uh, what essentially we believe are our favorite moments of the year. And what a year it was for the 73rd hole, starting off in January, going down the PGA Merchandise Show, getting to interview John Daly at Hooters. What an absolute unbelievable experience that is. And that is where we won our ING Award for Podcast of the Year. What an incredible honor that was. And then the year just kept getting better and better from there. Obviously, we had the PGA Championship in May. We got to do so many great interviews over the course of the year. And so, how this, how this will be structured is is that this will be a two-part series. The first part will consist of our favorite moments from leading up to and the week of the PGA Championship, so everything from January through May. And then our second part will consist of everything that occurred uh, from June passed on to the end of the year. And so for anyone else, there will be some things left out of our favorite moments because they were put into our Holy Awards, which was our last show. If you have not listened to that episode, that is where we gave out our annual uh, awards, a.k.a. Player of the Year, Favorite Moment of the Year, uh, Patrick Reed Award for the uh, D-Bag of the Year. So a lot of great awards given out there, so definitely make sure to go and listen to that to make sure you get the full experience of everything that occurred this year. So we'll go ahead and start down in Orlando at the PJ Merchandise Show. Show, where we got to interview the likes of many, many people when we were at uh, the Hooters location down in Orlando, right next to where the PJ Merchandise Show was being held. So what, what I'll do is for each of our, our clips that we have coming up, I will stay the date of which the, the podcast occurred. So in case you want to go back and listen to the full episode in all of its uh, entirety, you'll be able to go back and do that. So here is our interview with John Daly and legendary country singer, Colt Ford from the PJ Merchandise Show in Orlando. This interview occurred on January 26th. Colt Ford, we appreciate you taking some time for us. Having a little fun tonight. Glad to be here. How you boys doing? Doing, doing good. Great. Looking forward to some good music later. You got a show ready? Well, we're going to do a little something-something when we get up there. We're going to have some fun. <laughs> Ain't no telling what might happen. When Daly's here, you never know what's going to happen. So how'd you get tied in with this crew, and how'd you wind up here at the event tonight? Uh, so Squares, I, I got involved with Bob, the CEO. Uh, I've always had a foot problem. I have flat feet. Like, if I I stood on this table, you couldn't slide a brand new dollar bill under my foot. <laughs> so I've always struggled with golf shoes. And uh, I just had hit Bob up on Instagram. I was like, are these, how do these work? Because I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with shoes. And he sent me a pair. We started talking. We became friends. And then I became a, an ambassador for him. Then I brought, I called daily. They wanted somebody else. I called John, and that worked out. And uh, it's just kind of come to light. So I designed a couple of player, you know, a couple of pairs of shoes, the country soul and the American soul. I designed those. And, uh, yeah, it's been fun. And here we are. I'm so excited to hear JD sing, you know, because I've never really heard it. I've heard, you know, obviously hit it hard and everything. Oh, yeah. But he has the new album. He's got a new record. No, and John's, and John's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Mean, he's pretty That's good. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. First, I was going to ask from the country music as expert, how's John at singing? And then what would John say about your golf game? <laughs> oh, well. 
<laughs> you know, John and I grew up playing together. I played the tour for about 10 years. Yep. So I played golf at University of Georgia when he was at Arkansas. So we've known each other since we were kids. Uh, it ain't as good. Last, during the pandemic, it got pretty good. I actually played two Champions Tours events with those yep. guys. I qualified for a couple and played a couple. That was fun. But then we went back to work last year. So <laughs> my golf game isn't as good as it was because I've had to go back to my real job. But uh, at least I know what I'm getting paid in music. You don't know golf till you get done to, at the end. So. Golf, you work on commission. Yeah, yeah. It's 100% on commission. Believe me, that's a handy piece of information to have. You know what you're getting paid for your start. So <laughs> well, it's know, not bad. Yeah, you know, Cole, I played in the Arkansas Open a few months, a few years ago. And I, you yeah. know, I'm playing too. I sat on the range. I said, man, that's one of the best swings I've seen. Is This this guy had to be a tour player, like you mentioned. <laughs> what, what, what's the best part of your game? Are you just straight off the tee, got a good putter? What's the best aspect? You know, I, I, my whole life, ball striking was what I was really, really good at. And I'm not, I got, when I became famous for playing music, I was too daggum fat. I mean, I got to, I got to 330 pounds, so my golf swing had to be manipulated quite a bit. But I've lost a bunch of weight, so I'm starting to get that back. And um, I'm, I'm just kind of an all-around player. I got to, you know, in the music business, I, I got the most ability just because I've played a lot longer than everybody else. But Now, you had a bit of a health scare. Is that something you're comfortable talking about? Yeah, what, no, what I got a problem. What, what went down there? Just crazy. I had this spot come up on my eye that a friend of mine was like, hey, what's that spot in your eye? I'm like, I don't know. What are you talking about? I, I, I really didn't notice. I didn't notice anything and took a picture and I sent it to a friend of mine who's a optometrist and he goes ah you just take these drops you'll be good two weeks I'm like all right so I take the drops two weeks I'm like looks the same maybe bigger he goes well it's beyond me now so I go back to Georgia to a buddy of mine uh, that does cataract surgery and Lasix and he walks in he goes yeah I can't help you here you need a specialist I'm going wait what I mean I, I don't even notice anything's wrong and one of the top ones is there in Vanderbilt in uh, Nashville and I went and saw her and she goes you're probably 10 days away from having to do full chemo if you wouldn't have got this surgery oh, wow. done. She goes, if you'd have done like most men and just go, well, it's not bother me, I'll just wait. She goes, you'd have definitely lost your eye. And I'm like, oh my God. I didn't, I'm like, I didn't know any, I don't smoke. I don't, I'm like, I didn't, but you know, it was kind of freaky. It was really freaky there for a while. All good and, now though? Everything's yeah, I'm good? All, all good now. I mean, everything's fine. Just, um, you know, back at it. So how often do you get out on the course? I know you're, you're busy with music. How often do you get out there? You said during the pandemic, but when it's normal, when you're working, when you're playing, it, how often it do you get varies, scored? you know, and that's the, that's what's hard. And when you've played at a high, le- you know, when you played at a high level like I play, it's frustrating because you want to be able to do what you do. But golf requires practice. I mean, mm-hmm. you yes. give me, th- I ain't shot a basketball in six months, but you give me 30 minutes and I can make 90% from the foul line. <laughs> golf don't work that way. <laughs> I mean, like 30 minutes don't touch it if you ain't played in a while. I mean, so I, I just got done playing in the the Hilton Grand Vacation Tournament here in Celebrities oh, yeah. with the LPJ. So I've been here all week doing that and then I leave uh, Saturday for Pebble Beach for the AT&T. So looking forward to that. Yeah. So a lot of golf right now, but we'll see what happens. Who's your partner at the Pebble Beach? I'm thinking I'm playing. I might be playing with Ron Moore this year, I think, okay. is what oh, I, nice. I might have heard. So maybe, which, uh, which pros did you get to play with last week? La- uh, last week, let's see, I played with uh, – Pros or I- celebrities, just whoever you were playing No, up I'm with. just trying to think of the girl, Ryan O'Toole, the first round, and yeah, I've known no, Ron yeah. for a while. She's awesome. Great player. And then uh, – a little Japanese girl that was really good. Uh, I met and I played with Celine Boudier one day. She was very good. So and, there's uh, a couple Yukasaso, Nasa Hitoshi. Yeah, it was Nasa. Nasa yeah, 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 Nasa. Yeah, sweet as really she could player, be. She yeah. was super nice. And the Japanese Golf Channel was there filming okay. her. Well, I was roommates with a kid named Tai Tashima as a Japanese kid that this won like 15 times on the 
Japanese tour, and and I started telling them about that, and they were like, oh, and then they started following me. I'm like, I don't, she was like, what's going on? I'm like, oh, I know some guys. They're a lot older than you. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so it was fun. Yeah, we had a great week. I played with Matilda, girl from Finland, who's a new girl out there last round. Those girls, people need to go watch them. They really do. They really need to go watch how good They're these girls are. I meant, like, watching a regular tour event is not really reality anymore because they hit it so f- I mean, it's just, it's stupid. I mean, it's just a completely different world. I mean, guys that were long when I played are not even, they're, they're considered short today, and they were long then. I mean, and it's not even, you hit it 290 today, they're like, yeah, I don't know if you can make it out here, buddy. <laughs> Unless you just, it's like 290, that don't, that don't cut it anymore, but it's just a different world out there. I know you have a relationship with Toby Keith a little yeah. bit, and I think all of our listeners back in Oklahoma, especially, that's where we're based out of. Oh, well, really? I didn't well, know that. Yeah, so you guys are in Oklahoma. Yeah, absolutely. I'm living in Tulsa now. Are you really? Oh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. 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 We're so, all three down in Oklahoma City, but we work with Golf Oklahoma, which is out of Tulsa. Oh, right on. Yeah. I, go, I go there all the time to Toby's house and more. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I was just going to ask, do you have any stories about y'all playing golf uh, and, and kind of just we, go from there? We've got a lot of stories. I mean, Toby, he's been awful good to me for a long time, and, and he's, he's become one of my better friends. And We've been on tour, and normally we play Pebble every year together in the same group, but he is, he's got to have some ankle surgery, so he's not playing this year. So uh, it'll be a little different. My favorite story from Toby that's a good one, they were at Augusta National, and uh, he and uh, Coach Stoops and Toby are thick as thieves. They were together. And there was a whole big group of guys, and the CEO for AT&T is from Moore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's sitting in there in the room talking with these other guys, and they're like, where are you from? He goes, oh, you probably never heard of it, Moore, Moore Oklahoma. <laughs> he goes, I'm probably the most famous person. <laughs> and Toby's sitting out on the porch with Stoops, and he leaned in, and he goes, my name's on the water tower. <laughs> I thought that was a pretty good one. So. That's yeah, nobody knows who the CEO of AT&T is. They know who Toby Keith is. But. Especially in Oklahoma. Yeah, exactly. I promise you, he's more famous than the AT&T guy in Oklahoma. All right, we're back from Orlando. We're here at the Hooters in Orlando. We're joined now by the man, the myth, the legend, John Daly, mozzarella sticks and all. We, we tried to make it work earlier outside, and, John, we were stumbling all over ourselves. You ever seen a bigger group of jackasses in your life? I love y'all. <laughs> we love you too, baby. I'm eating Hooters food right now. But. <laughs> the is there any better series? food than Hooters? No. There isn't no. any, is there? That's why you've been coming back all these years. I mean, this, this event tonight, your foundation, how awesome is this to see it all come together like this? It's unbelievable. Bruce, with um, CEO of the Hooters of America, our guys in uh, Clearwater, 27 stores, our Texas wing, I'm going to give Texas wing house, all our guys at Hooters in Texas. Hooters is the best place to go. JB, our, our connection to this event was Major Ed from Oklahoma City. We've had him on many times. Um, and he gave a powerful speech before about how you're helping kids with cancer. And that really touched my heart because when I was playing college golf, I had cancer. And yeah, I know well, you had a we, battle with it. And I, I was just going to say, you inspire me with your positive attitude. And just tell me about all the things you're doing to help that. Well, we're, we're help, we want to get to the, we want to get big enough to help St. Jude. We, we always help the military, no doubt. We want to help Boys and Girls Club. Um, but what we do is from the heart, and that's why we're Heart of Lion. And my lion is the logo, and his purple heart behind it is his purple heart that he fought to save our freedom in, in military and, and what he did give us our freedom. He lost his leg in Afghanistan, carried two people off, saved their lives, and they owe him his life, but they don't. 
Yeah. Because that's what we do. And they're just badass people. And they get to know Rob O'Neill and Darren McBee and all the SEALs that helped coordinate to kill Osama bin Laden, which needed to be done. Um, you know, we got to protect the United States of America. And Biden's not doing it. Um, we need to protect America so we can protect the people in America. And you want to defund the police, and we've seen what's going on with that. That sucks. Uh, more cops are getting killed every day. And um, it's just a sad, we're in a sad environment in the United States of America. You know, what are we going to do? And if anybody listens to me, please, let's get to common sense. Let's, let's praise the American flag and praise the people that fought for the American flag and all you people that don't want to go, you know what? It is like the middle finger for anyone that doesn't know. JD, how can we get the United States of America to be one country again? We're so divided right now. How can we get back to where Donald we all just Trump's want the same gonna thing? Donald Trump's going to run in 2024. Naomi at South Dakota, if she doesn't run for vice president, I will. And we'll end this shit. I honor the American veterans. I honor the people that fight for our country. I love America. We're in the greatest country in the world. By and Biden, far. And Biden's screwing it all up. Daily 2028? Or after? 24. 24. 24. Yeah. Vice President with Donald Trump. What do you think? I love it. I, I love it. it. What, what if you're president and Trump is vice president? I think that might no, be better. No, no. Trump knows what, he knows what's going on. I don't want to deal with China. Hey, we're a college golf podcast mostly. And obviously, little John or John Daly II, as he likes to be called now, is on the Arkansas Hogs. How are the Hogs going to be this year? I know we've had Taylor Moore and Tyson Reeder from the Hogs on before. How are the Hogs looking this year? We're good. We're third in the country, third or fourth in the country, and uh, Little John's got to earn his spot, and he loves fighting for it. He did and pretty I damn good it. at the PNC. I love it. He's fighting for his spot on the University of Arkansas, and 23, he's probably going to be either three or four, maybe two, maybe one. Who knows? <laughs> how, how cool was the PNC for you and him to win it? How cool was that? Just playing with my son is like the greatest. Um, you know, Seeing my kids born, my two daughters born, and him born is the greatest thing that I'll ever say in life. It's three different wives, but hey, it's okay. But for me and my son to play in the PNC and win it against Tiger and Charlie, making a move was the greatest thing in the world. And then we have one Twitter question that I got to ask about Arkansas. Someone tweeted us and said, you have to ask John Daly his favorite memory from Dixon Street. Well, my favorite memory from Dixon Street was probably when I was in school. Uh, Steve Atwater was our safety for the University of Arkansas. And we're at home, and we beat them in um, the Southwest Conference. He intercepted a pass against A&M, and we won the Southwest Conference. And Dixon Street, <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I got... <laughs> Y'all feel that shit out. <laughs> J.D., I got a question about our man Major Ed. We interviewed him earlier on before we had you on. Our man Major Ed left half of a white claw here full. Does this count as a party foul? There's well, three, he four. doesn't drink uh, girls' drinks. That white claw <laughs> shit's all girl drinks. If you don't drink so, vodka straight, whiskey straight, you're not a man. 
And women can drink whatever they want to because they're beautiful and I love them. So, so we don't blame Majorette for not finishing the drink. It was the drink itself. And it wasn't even, he's not, we're not even sponsored by White Claw. Hey, White Claw, give us $5 million. We might drink this shit. <laughs> JD, one thing I've always wondered, how many packs of cigarettes do you bring over to the British Open? As many as I want. <laughs> I love, I love. Here's the question, how many do I smoke? Every one of them. <laughs> Yes. JD, I we appreciate it. you being so gracious with your time. Unbelievable event. Your foundation's awesome. And we, hope, every, we, we hope everybody supports. You got it. Thank America is the best country in the world. It is. And people need to start realizing that. Thank Daily you. 2024. Thank you. And I'll get you a John Daly hat. I love Tiger Woods, but. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to hey, I got a great hey, Norman hat. Tiger Woods can't grip it and rip it. He can just only grip it and sink it. Hey. He's the best putter in the world. Hey. But I grip it and rip it. And that hat. Last time you and he were on the same golf course, you walked off with the trophy. So you got that going for you. That's right. I must still know one of these beautiful cheese sticks from Hooters. <laughs> I don't even think they're ours, but we're going to keep eating. God, these are beautiful. Ah. Hooters, best food in the world. I will never forget to the day I die, just the pure satisfaction and joy that John Daly had on his face when he put that cheese stick in his mouth. He was just so savoring and loved every minute of it. And what a great experience it was down there. And the great hospitality that Major Ed Polito and everyone else put down there at the PJ Merchandise Show for us was truly unbelievable. Now on to some of our other favorite moments that occurred in the year of 2022. A moment that I unfortunately was unable to attend, but our man Sam Humphreys and Colby Powell were able to get down there and got one of our best interviews of the entire year. They interviewed Chris Goddard, Logan McAllister, and Vinny Patrick Welch, the cross-handed bandit, down at the Charlie Coast Center. And uh, they got some very great insights uh, from the three young gentlemen who uh, will more than likely, all three of them, will be tour players at some point. Uh, Chris Goddard is already out there, and uh, Logan McAllister is on his way, and Vinny is still in uh, college this year coming up, so expect a big year from him. So here is a short clip from a March 8th interview down at the Charlie Coast Center with Chris Goddard, Logan McAllister, and Patrick Welch. Chris, kind of coming from Rutgers, what are the differences you've seen as far as Ryan Hibble's culture? Because I feel like Hibble's culture is such a brotherhood, and I think that that's one of the things that separates you guys as a college golf team where I never hear anybody talk bad about anybody else. You guys are brothers, and it's kind of, uh, you know, you guys are all friends. You hang out off the course, and, and just tell me everything about the differences be not only between Oklahoma and Rutgers, but Oklahoma and everybody else. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a huge difference between us and everyone else. And then, obviously, you know, coming from Rutgers in New Jersey to here is also a big difference. But, um, you know, I, I I loved my time there, but it was just it, I just needed a little bit of a change and um, the chance to come play for a team like this and to play for a national championship is pretty cool. And uh, like you said, the, our team, we were together on the course, off the course, and if someone's winning, we're happy for them. Obviously, Vinny played lights out in Vegas, and Logan won at Pebble Beach, and then I won in Puerto Rico. So to have everyone kind of chip in here and there, and when someone isn't playing their best, you know, we still have a chance to win. So I think that's what kind of makes this team special, and, uh, you know, we're all equally happy for each other when someone's got the chance to win. And, you know, we're, you know it's helping the team, whether you're not winning or not. So it's uh, – it's just it's cool to have all those people contribute here and there. Logan, I'll ask you this, and then I'll get Chris's side. Speaking of having fun on and off the golf course, I, I've seen your guys' Instagrams <laughs> with the handshakes. Tell me about that, and and tell me who has the better of who in those in those matches. Uh, it started because 
we I always talk to Chris about his chipping. He's been working on it. He's gotten a lot better at it. But I used to always like we. I was like, I have a better short game than you. And so he was like, all right, we're gonna we're gonna go out to the chipping green. We're gonna play. We play a game called Twenty One, and. It was like whoever loses has to post the other guys better has a better short game than them. <laughs> so our very first one, this was probably I don't know, it was, it was a couple of weeks before we left for Puerto Rico, and we get out there and and it's like I was way up on him. It's the closest gets two, second closest gets, gets one, and so I think I was up like maybe sixteen eight on him or something, and a make is five. So we're all, it's sixteen eight. I'm like ah, I got this easy. He chips in and gets the other closest, so he gets up to like sixteen fourteen. And we're sitting there on, like, the second-to-last hole. I think it's 19-18. to 18. So he can't sweep it, and I can't get closest. And he hits first, hits it to, like, two feet, and then I make it on top of him. And so th- <laughs> that, that was kind of a perfect uh, ending to what, to what we were doing. And so that, that sparked that, and I was like, you know what? When we qualify, let's do the same thing. And so the very first one, he goes out and beats me by like nine. So I'm sitting here at Chris Goddard, beat me by nine, and I'm getting re- I'm getting replies on my Instagram like in one round, what did he-, he beat you by nine? And it, and I was like, no, 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 this is like a five round qualifier. But it was just something fun that we decided to to start doing. To because be honest with you, like I don't want to post saying that he beat me, and he doesn't want to post saying that that I beat him. So I think we might be. We might be two two or something, but he's got me in a in a couple tournaments. So it's it's been a fun kind of uh, addition to. Uh, I don't know if that's gambling or not, but it's probably it's probably, it's probably not <laughs> it's supposed to be gambling. But yeah, it's, it's, it's it's not gambling. It's not yeah. gambling at all. It's a handshake. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Calvin Ridley is not it's here. Fun. That's, yeah. exactly. <laughs> that's, uh, you know, exactly. It's, golf is it's an individual game, but it's so unique at the the high school and the college level because you're part of a team. So it's an individual game, but you're trying to accomplish something as a team. It's very different than what happens when you become a professional. So, how do you balance? When you're at tournaments, are, are you ever trying to talk to your teammates mid-round, practice rounds? Are you talking about scores that you might be wanting to go out and shoot? Uh, I mean, we'll start with you, Logan. You've been around a while. Just the team aspect of college golf, all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes, how, how special is that, and how much do you cherish that, knowing that when you become a professional, that, that team aspect really kind of goes away? Yeah, Coach talks about it all the time. I mean, when you're here, you're here for four years, maybe five now with COVID and stuff, but and that's pretty much the only four years that you get to be around elite players that you can kind of push and stuff. Cause when you get to pro golf, you know, you have friends or whatever, but they're trying to beat you and there's no sort of, there's no sort of team. Uh, there's no sort of team aspect to that. Unless you play in a Ryder cup or a president's cup. He, he always says that he's like, you know, there's 12 guys on a Ryder cup team every two years. And that's the only other team atmosphere that you get besides college golf. And so it's been, it's been so much fun to, uh, to not only have a bunch of guys that are pushing you to, to be better, but also uh, to support those guys too. Because, like, we all want to go out and, and beat each other every single week. But at the end of the day, there's a team title too. And we've been lucky enough to, to win a lot of team titles in the four years I've been here. And, and every single time, you're not if, – if you get second and the guy wins, you're not sitting there angry that, that you got second. You're, you're happy that we went out and won. Because odds are, if a guy beats you by one and you guys are one and two on the leaderboard, you probably won as a team. So there's some sort of – consolation prize to that which is which has been really really fun and I'm I'm a little sad to see that go but I'm gonna try to enjoy it while I'm while I'm still here what a great interview from those three young outstanding men and what a seamless transition this is going to be because our next clip is with the the guy that coaches them a legendary Oklahoma golf coach Ryan Hibble this clip is from an interview that we did on April 28th this was actually just a few days after 
Oklahoma won the Big 12 Golf Championship, and this is also just, I believe, a few hours before it was announced that Jimmy Austin was going to host an NCAA regional. And you could kind of tell whenever Sam asked a question about uh, should teams be able to host and pick the regional, his response, and uh, you could tell he kind of wanted to say something, but uh, he ended up holding it back for the announcement. So here is a clip from our interview with Ryan Hibble that occurred on April 28th. Coach, I'm curious. There's been a, a years-long battle for supremacy in the Big 12. You guys, Oklahoma State and Texas, we all think it's the best golf conference in the country, and we love the Big 12 championship every year because it's so close. D- does it give you any deeper satisfaction winning that tournament yesterday in such close fashion after the heartbreak at Prairie Dunes last year? Is there extra satisfaction because it came over what, what would probably be considered your two rivals with Oklahoma State and Texas? Yes. <laughs> I love it. Hey, uh, let, let me tell you, it's uh, that tournament, and we, you know we got cut down another eighteen holes. It was supposed to be seventy-two hole championship. We have the the best conference championship in the country because we play seventy-two holes on elite golf courses throughout throughout our country. So we're super thankful. We know how great our conference is. Uh, in probably the last ten years, there's no doubt in my mind we've been the best golf men's golf conference in the country. Uh, I mean, just heavyweights, you know, every single year. And, I mean, our guys know that. That uh, I mean, we talked about it. Since the Big 12 championship has been around, whenever the conference actually moved into the Big 12 from the Big 8, there's only been three Oklahoma teams that have, have won that, that sucker. That was in 06, and that was the 18 team, and then this 22 team. So there's only been 15 guys that have been able to feel what we just felt, you know, in our program history of, of the Big 12. And it's just – it's a tough – tough championship to win so I mean arguably you could sit there and go our, our conference championship is as difficult to, to win as a national championship I, I've done I've been fortunate to do both and I'm telling you guys it is that difficult and I'll, I'll a real quick story in 17 after we won uh, the national championship at Rich Harvest I had a, uh, a golf writer from the USA Today call me and, he, and he's like coach you know explain to me how you finish fifth at your conference championship and then you come over here and, and win the national championship. And I, and I had to go into a history lesson with this guy to help him understand like what our conference means. We finished fifth that year, but we were still one of the top teams in the country and we knew that we were good enough to be able to go win a national championship. That's just how good our conference is, you know? A hundred percent, Coach. One more and we'll let you get out of here. Um, we've talked a lot over the years, over the past couple of years of doing this, about how to reward uh, top teams in college golf for having such great seasons. And I'll ask you kind of a two-part question here. Do you think that the number one seed should be able to pick their regional, and do you think that teams should be able to host regionals at their home course? Good question, Sam. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've been talking about this for years, about basically kind of playing in like you do in baseball and softball playing into your regionals. Right. And I think there's actually a really simple way to do it. You basically submit a bid at the beginning of the year and, and golf courses hold that spot. And let's call it an arbitrary date like April 1st. Based on where you are in the seedings, you know that you're going to be hosting or not. So it might not make it all the way through the conference championship because that's so late in the game, but you pick some type of date. And I think that there's a lot of us that are in favor of doing that just because, you know, I mean, like last year, we get sent to Albuquerque. We're the number one seed in the country. Um, I didn't get any phone call from anybody asking where, where our preference would be. And, you know, we go out to Albuquerque where New Mexico's a five seed. And, 
you know, Bob, you know, you kind of go down through the, through the list and there's no excuses. It's just, it is what it is. And, and you can, you can be in a tough spot, right? So if you have kind of played your way into being one of those top seeds, absolutely. I think that you should at least have the opportunity to host. It doesn't, it doesn't really mean that you're going to some people's golf courses aren't suited uh, to be able to host. Maybe it's because they're private or whatever the, the, the case may be, but I'm in, I'm in favor for sure of playing to, to host and, um, you know, it's just regionals is, is an, is a week that is super stressful. You know, that Sam, and, yep. and uh, it doesn't matter if you're hosting or not, if you have a great team or not, it's, it's still a stressful week and, and to just try and maintain in, in your routine and make sure the guys understand that, um, you know, nobody's going to hand that, that, uh, national championship bid to you. So still got to go play some phenomenal golf. What an outstanding leader of men Ryan Hibble is. If he doesn't make you want to run through a brick wall to go out and shoot some low scores, I don't know anyone else that can. So it's always a great honor when we get to speak with Coach. And now our next clip is going to come from anyone who is from the Oklahoma area as we are knows who this next gentleman is. A legendary Oklahoma radio uh, host, Al Ashbeck. Got to go to Augusta National for the first time this year with another legendary radio host, Craig Humphreys. And here's just a little clip from our interview with Al and Craig when they were down at Augusta National. I believe this interview occurred on April 8th during our midweek uh, Augusta recap show. And uh, here's just a little insight from the man, the myth, the legend, Al Ashbeck. Welcome back here on the 73rd Hole Podcast, the official podcast of Golf Oklahoma. And we are now joined by special guest Al Ishback. And Al, I mean, you're in Augusta for the first time. Obviously, you haven't I, been I, to the course yet. But what are you looking forward to most about being at Augusta National tomorrow? Well, well, first of all, I get here. I got here about a, a, an hour ago. And uh, uh, Craig Humphreys, uh, Bev White, and uh, Brad Lund, uh, we tried to go to this restaurant called Pebo, the most famous restaurant in the city of, uh, of Augusta. Four thousand people there. No way we can get in, right? Zero way. <laughs> Everybody told me this restaurant's the best to go. Craig Humphrey goes and finds the owner of the place. <laughs> I swear to God. Five minutes later, we're sitting at the table, and I'm drinking wine. How good is that? I mean, who can do that but Craig Humphrey? He's... People go, "How do you guys get in there so fast?" Craig goes, "I know the owner." I mean, just like that. You kidding me? That's unbelievable. So, my, yeah, my first stop here in Augusta is uh, a little bit magic. Uh, and, uh, I, no, I, I was just telling uh, I was telling uh, Brad Lund and, and Bev that I don't get excited about sporting events anymore because I've done everything for the most part. I am so excited about this. It is just like all on, on the way here. I'm just thinking about this. Wow, incredible is it going to be? And, I mean, it's just so exciting to me. And, uh I'm just the experience is just unbelievable. I just I I can't imagine, and I'm not the golf fan that Craig is. That you guys are. Obviously, I've watched you since a little kid. I mean, so you watch him since you're a little kid. And you go, ah, pretty tough to get. Everybody go, well, you can't get in that place. And again, Craig Humphrey's little magic and everything gets me a badge. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm here and I'm excited. And uh, it, it just it's like. Going to a, a magic place is what it's like. It, it, it's uh, and and that that's what that's what's so exciting for me. And I mean, the the hunt man down at Augusta National doesn't get any more big league than that. Now, now Al, tomorrow's gonna be your first day. 
there at Augusta National. What, what do you plan to do the minute that you get in the game? What's going to be your first stop at the, the famous abode that is Augusta? Well, I, 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 I want to see the course. Obviously, I want to see the course. Uh, it, it, when you watch something on TV, see, I've traveled the world. So one of the things I, I, I watch on TV, I go, this looks like one of the most beautiful places in the world. So it's, it, it, it's not just a sporting event to me. It's a travel experience to me is what this whole thing is. So it's like if, every time the last few years watching on TV, said, I can't believe how beautiful this place is. So, you know, and I've been, I've been to uh, Westwood and Norman. And so I, I don't I mean, maybe a little bit different than everything. So I don't know. <laughs> right? Al, Al, I got to ask you, now you're lucky that Tiger made the cut for you. I mean, you, you were going on the weekend. It's a little bit of a risk. What, who, what guys are going to see on the weekend? Are you going to try to get out there and see Tiger at all tomorrow? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know what? One reason I want to see Tiger, I want to see how crazy the gallery is. Yep. That's what I want to see. I mean, I, 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 I just wonder, Tiger's the biggest cult figure in, in, in golf history. Uh, there was Arnie. Nicholas was a great, was a cult guy. He was a great golfer, but Arnie was a cult, and now Tiger's the biggest cult of all time in the sport. So you don't have many cult heroes like a Tiger. I just want to see how the fans react. Are they going to scream, get in the hole, or uh, do I got to do that? I don't know. This is this is my first match. I don't know how I'm going to react or act. I, what an awesome experience that must have been for the legend Al Ashback to get down there and get the full Augusta experience with Kirk Humphreys. It has to be on really any golf fan's bucket list. But i tell you one thing that is not on anyone's bucket list, as far as I know, is getting into a driving range, essentially wrestling match, but before a college tournament. And so back on May 11th, we got to interview, in my opinion, the best golfer to ever come out of the state of Oklahoma. That was Bob Tway, and he had a very, very interesting story about before a college tournament, him and Mike Holder were not seeing eye-to-eye on a few things, so uh, they just went ahead and, and handled it there on the driving range. So here is just a small clip from our interview with the 1986 PJ Championship winner, Bob Tway. Bob, we're sitting out here, like Colby said, on the patio at Karsten Creek, and I got a question not only for you, but for Woody as well. I know that a bunch of our listeners are Oklahoma State fans. We need to hear a couple Mike Holder stories, either one from Woody and one from Bob, but we, we got to hear a couple. You, you want the X-ray? You want, you want the X-ray one? It's a podcast. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> You guys can say I mean, whatever you want. Yeah, you can say whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> you, 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 you could go, you could, we could be, we could be on here for, for days about Holder stories. <laughs> Just pick one or two, guys. You know, it's, it's, it's funny because, unfortunately, in this day and age, I don't know if Coach should be Coach anymore. <laughs> as much stuff as we have. I, I don't think he could, buddy. I don't think he could. I'm, I'm pretty so, sure he so, couldn't. So the time that he and I were wrestling out on the driving range at Whitfall probably would have got him in a little bit of trouble. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was going to be that was going to be one of my stories. But you can tell that one because that actually happened to you. So that would be a good one for you to tell. Well, 
you know, there's two sides to every story, right? So oh, yeah. <laughs> his, is, his is probably a little bit different than mine, but, but for some reason, you know, we, we had to take Shaq back, a Shaq back up to that tournament because they didn't have a, a really a driving range. We just were just kind of warming up in a field and coach took his, his, uh, second string balls, I'll say, you know, they were all the, his beat up balls. And I kept bugging him. I said, coach, why didn't you bring your good balls? Don't you trust us to, you know, keep them in play? And I don't know. He was in a bad mood that day or whatever, and he'd had enough. And so I smarted off, you know, about something, and, and he basically just took me down. And there I was, 15 minutes before I was supposed to tee off with all the other all the other teams that are warming up, and he and I are having a wrestling match right there on the driving ring. And <laughs> coach, coach, coach was bigger than me. This is my sophomore year, and he was bigger than me, and he got the best of me. He sure did because I got up, and I got on my black slacks and my orange shirt. I've got grass stains on my back, and i got a cut on my side of my face. I mean, we didn't just wrestle. We were getting after it. And, yes, yes. I was a witness. I was a witness. Yeah. So this is factual, boys. This is actually happening. And we're all standing around, all of us on the team and all the other guys on other teams, and we're, we're looking at each other going, are you shitting me? What in the hell is this? <laughs> And, and we really were, I'm dead serious, guys. We were going, are you kidding me? What is he doing? So what happened, Bob? Did you just put a tee so, in well, the ground and go play golf like nothing happened? Okay, so, so, the, so the second part is, so, so yeah, everyone's eyes are like, you know, wide open, deer in the head, like, what is happening? And, you know, we're all from Oklahoma. We've all wrestled. You know, after you wrestle for a couple minutes, I mean, you're like shaking. You know, your, yeah. your, your muscles yeah. are fatigued and, and you're mad and you're sweaty i mean we were getting after it and and yeah. so now i've got to go to the tee and i don't know if you i don't I, I don't remember the golf course all that well up there but all i know is on the first tee if there was out of bounds left i would have been in it because i hit it two fairways over off the first tee. <laughs> <laughs> the, the so biggest good. snap the biggest snap hook you've ever seen and I trundle over there, and I'm still so mad I can't even see straight. And I end up making – I make double bogey on the hole. And I'm <laughs> yeah. like, I'm like, I don't know what to do. I'm beside myself, you know. And so we had a long uh, – fortunately, we had a long wait on the second hole. Someone had lost the ball or something ahead of us or whatever. And I got to sit down on a bench, and I just kind of got to collect myself a little bit. And I ended up playing okay. But it's weird because we <laughs> – we, we finished the round. Obviously, Holder and I didn't speak. We got in the van, and we've got to, we got to drive back to Stillwater, you know, two and a half hours, and Coach is driving, and I'm actually up in the front seat. We haven't spoken. We didn't speak for two weeks. So, And then all of a sudden, it was like, I, I guess the time limit was up or whatever, and then all of a sudden, it was kind of like, okay, it's over with or whatever. But it was a very uncomfortable situation for quite a long time. <laughs> it was uncomfortable. Hey, guys, can you imagine? It was uncomfortable for all of us. And there was more than one time when we all had to ride in that van after he was pissed off at us. And if you you tell Woody he can't talk for two and a half hours, that's tough on Woody. That is really hard for Woody to do. And, 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 and we, I had to sit back there like a sock in my mouth because I felt sorry for Bob. I wanted to whip his ass is what I wanted to do. I was sorry. You know, I was like, God dang, but I was smaller than Bob, so. If both of us had pounced on him, we had a chance. The only guy he wouldn't fight is Britt. Britt Harrison. He wouldn't. Have, he didn't. He didn't go toe to toe. Britt. Britt had killed him. So, so I got. I got to tell. I got to tell one other backstory. So so that was like that my sophomore year. So anyway, over that year, I actually grew like another couple inches, and we were working out. So by by 
like winter of my junior year, I was bigger than Holder was. And we'd always yeah. go down the wrestling room and, and we'd wrestle every winter. He just loved to take us down there because I think it was because it was so nasty. You know, the wrestlers loved it, you know. So, so we were wrestling and we had this deal that we'd wrestle until someone said uncle. Well, I got coaching kind of a half Nelson. But you know what? He wouldn't have said uncle. I could have killed him before he was going to say uncle. <laughs> That's a fact. So, that is a fact. So I just kept cranking on his shoulder, and finally, I just knew that he was turning red because I had him in a good position, and, and he was not going to say it. So I finally let him up. Well, the great thing is I'd hurt his shoulder, and he couldn't play golf for like two weeks. So everybody was excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> I was so proud of you, buddy. I was so proud of you. That's so and, good. And, and if you guys, you guys want to hear even a funnier one than that, when Holder had a rule that when you were playing, you could not have any – you couldn't have a dip in or you couldn't smoke, you couldn't cuss, and you couldn't throw golf clubs. And if you did any one of those, it was a five-shot penalty. And if you were playing with the guy and he did it and you didn't turn him in, it was a five-shot penalty on you. Wow. Well, late, at 8th Lakeside, wow. the 18th hole, I don't know if you guys remember the 18th hole Lakeside before we redid everything. There was a group of cedar trees right behind the green. Well, it was Lindy Miller and Britt Harrison and I were playing a qualifying round. Well, Britt Harrison had the biggest chew in his mouth you've ever seen, okay? <laughs> and we're on the 18th screen. Well, he misses this little three-footer or four-footer, I don't know what it was, and he wings his putter at his bag and hollers at the top of his lung an F-bomb that you could hear somewhere south of Stillwater, okay? <laughs> well, right as that happened... Holder walks through that hedge. Those cedar trees are right there. Holder walks through that hedge at that exact, the timing couldn't have been worse for Britt. Well, Lindy and I see him, and we're looking at each other, and Lindy and I look at each other, and we both look at Britt, and we go, hey, Britt, that, that's a five-shot penalty for Custom. That's a five-shot <laughs> penalty for throwing that club. And this you got in your mouth, that's a five-shot penalty. <laughs> well, Holder's having no part of this. He says, you three, get in the clubhouse now. Get in there. So we go in there, and I don't know why, but Bob will tell you, but Holder had a burr up his ass for me from the time I hit the door. And I don't know what I did wrong the whole time, other than I was just kind of a happy-go-lucky guy, and he didn't like that. Well, anyway, we get in this office, and he's sitting there in front of us all, and he goes, first off, every one of you is getting 15 shots. And I said, oh, what? I said, we, we called it on him. He goes, what did you shut up? <laughs> Well, okay. So I shut up. Well, then the funny thing happened. We had a big tournament coming that week coming up. Well, he needed Brett and Lindy. He didn't need a Woody. I mean, Woody was just, you know, trying to make the team. But all of a sudden, they didn't have those five-shot penalties like they were, and they went on the on the tournament. And I went, what the hell? I walked up my – he said, Woody, you shut up. <laughs> And there's there's two stories for you. And Bob's right. We could go on. Guys, this show ain't long enough. We could go on for as long as you want it because they're a nonstop.
every time I go back and I hear that story, it, it, I don't believe that it's true. <laughs> like, it, it's just so beyond crazy that something like that happened. But also, every time I hear it, it makes me picture it a little bit better. And I feel like that I'm almost there reliving the events that transpired <laughs> on that faithful day. So what a what a great story that was. And thankful for Bob for sharing that. It's up there with one of the best stories that we've heard on the 73rd Hole podcast. Now, we're going to get on to something a little bit more on a more of a serious note. And... When it comes to the timing purposes, it was probably one of the best interviews that we've ever had on this podcast coming up. Uh, during the week of the PGA Championship, it was either the day or, it, nevertheless, it was the week that, that Alan Shipnack released his book on Phil Mickelson. So that was the overall major talking point because Phil wasn't even at Southern Hills, and I had been saying for a month leading up to that 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 was the reason that he was not going to play. So uh, definitely a very, very highlighting, uh, polarizing deal that happened that week at the PJ that didn't even occur because of golf. So here is just a, a small clip from our interview with Alan Shipnuck that occurred on May 18th, and Alan shares some of his uh, more shocking insights from uh, diving into to Phil's life. Alan. How is everything going? Obviously, it's been a whirlwind month or so for you. Number one, just personally, what has this all been like for you as not only a reporter but a person? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there is actually a human heart beneath the uh, the reporter costume for sure. I mean, it's really three months. You know, we, we dropped the excerpt. Well, it's really 30 years is how long I've been working on this book in my head. You know, my first year on tour was 94. That was Phil's second full season, so I've been tracking him ever since, but... I always knew there was a great book there, and amazingly, no one's ever done a biography of Phil Mickelson as big a life as he's had. There's, you know, my my bookshelf sagged for all the mediocre Tiger Woods biographies, but um, Phil was was just this big, huge, controversial life that no one had ever really captured. So, um, you know, the book was a year and a half in the making. We dropped an excerpt in February, way ahead of the actual publication date by three months, but it was just a very fraught moment for the game. With, uh, with this potential new breakaway Saudi league. And it just felt like I had information that was so relevant to golf fans and, and to the, the moment for, as this sport was at a crossroads. And so I uh, felt compelled to really bring this out ahead of publication. So it's, it's really been three months of intensity because obviously that set off this whole chain of events that led to, you know, Phil's exile. And so as a reporter, you never want to be the story. You know, my job is to tell stories, not to be in the middle of them, but... It just the way it played out. It's it's been intense. It's been it's been a, a wild ride. The 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 book this today is the actual official publication date. So I'm just happy that people now can hold in their hands or listen in or read it on their screens. But just get the totality of the story and really understand the context of where the excerpts came from and see that it. You know, I tried my best to make a very fair, balanced look at a very complicated person. Alan, over this last year and a half, you know, with everything that you've learned, you know, what would you say is the most shocking thing that you've unraveled throughout all this? That's a good question. I mean, it's got to be the scale of Phil's gambling losses. You know, we it's always been part of his brand. You know, he, everyone knows that he loves a wager. He's an adrenaline junkie. When he cashed that Super Bowl ticket, you know, he bet the Ravens back in 02. Uh, you know, twenty-eight to one, put, put down twenty thousand dollars, won five hundred and sixty. Like he loved crowing about that. Like Phil has never been shy about this. You know, these these Tuesday money games on tour. So you know, if he's winning, he's also losing. But never imagined how how deep it would go. And just through my reporting, I was able to to get access to these documents because when Phil got mixed up in that insider trading case with Billy Walters, he was subject to this forensic audit by the government. And the four years they scrutinized, 2010 to 14, uh, he had gambling losses of $40 million. 
that's a big number. No matter how much money you're making, and you know, back then Phil was probably making forty to fifty million dollars a year all in. But living in California, we know he loved to complain about the California taxes and the trappings of a huge life with the jets and the pilots and the swing coaches and nutritionists and all that. And his wife's out there buying T-Rex skulls as birthday presents. It's not how much you make, it's how much you keep. And after all of that burn, then to lose that 10 million on average, it, it makes you wonder, you know, how much is left. And as, as Phil's gotten caught up in this whole Saudi seduction, that's been one of the big questions. Like, why is he chasing this money so hard? You wouldn't think he needs it after all these years as, as a number two money, uh, career money list uh, in the PGA Tour. But I think when you see the scale of the gambling, it helps explain some of his behavior and that maybe the Saudi thing is more about necessity. And uh, so th- that would be the single most shocking thing to me. And, Alan, you followed Phil. Like you said, you've been in business since 1994. Uh, you probably followed him even before that. I know he, he won the individual title NCAA championship in the late 80s here in Oklahoma at our course at Oak Tree in Edmond. Uh, so the the point is, Phil would be an interesting story, even without the Saudi information. And and the Saudi information came very late in the game as far as your book is uh, concerned, right? Yeah, I was a week from, from when the book was due, and Phil rang me up and told me everything. And I'd gone to him three times and asked him face-to-face to, you know, sit for interviews for the book, and he declined, which was fine. But in the end, he couldn't help himself. He had to tell me how smart he was and how he had gamed the whole system. And he was smarter than Jay Monahan, the tour commissioner, and he was smarter than Greg Norman, the figurehead for the Saudis, and that he had expertly played them against each other, created all this leverage, had gotten all the things he'd always wanted but could never have from sort of a structural standpoint in professional golf. And so... Uh, that's what's interesting about Phil is he's always battling his inherent tendencies. And even though he didn't want to talk to me and he decided it wasn't a good idea, he just couldn't help himself. And that's, you know, that's of a piece with, with how he lives his life, how he plays the game. You know, should he have, when he's in the trees on the second hole at Wingfoot, she just hit a nice little safe little wedge into the fairway. Of course, but he wanted to hit a hero shot and win the U S open in great style. And instead he set himself on fire. Like they're, he's walking a knife's edge in so many different ways on the golf course and off. And uh, it's what makes him so compelling and, and maddening and, and riveting, but uh, there's a downside to that. And, you know, this exile he's been in is, is, is obvious proof of that. So thankful for Alan's time that day. And, and for something you can't see on the podcast, we did this interview very, very late at night and so thankful for, for Alan because he could have easily said, no, I, I don't have time. I got to go. He's got a, a busy week. It's PJ Championship week. But uh, he took his time out of his day to give us some really great insights. So make sure to go check out that full interview in its entirety. It's definitely worth worth your time to hear the insights that, that Alan gives. I know that he got a little bit of a bad rap for all this Phil stuff and saying he, really questioning his character um, from a lot of people. But, uh, you know, for people that have met him personally, he was outstanding to us, and uh, we have nothing but great things to say uh, about Alan Shipnuck. So uh, during that same week at the PJ Championship, we had so many things transpire. We had Tiger playing, which was my favorite moment of the week. We had Justin Thomas beating Will Zalatoris in a playoff. We had Mito's choke on 18, hitting the ball into the creek. And so we did – 
it was I believe it was every other day or there we did four or five episodes that week and you could just tell with the next clip coming up just how tired we all were especially myself I just I mean I was just drained from the entire week sun up to sundown Monday through Sunday just there and watched so much golf I loved every minute of it if, it, if this qualifies as work it's the best work I've ever done it was so tiring but yet so awesome and such an experience that I will never forget for the rest of my life. So here's just a short clip from after the final round of the PJ Championship. This is our initial thoughts when we got off the golf course. Guys, I mean, I don't know where to start. I probably had the <laughs> coolest experience of my life today, at least work-wise. Um, I don't know what I don't know where to start. Well, I, I, don't I walked down I have the fairway. No idea. Guys, I walked down the fairway of a playoff for a major championship today. I mean, it, the electricity in the air. I, I, I got up the hill to do the radio show with my dad and Woody, and Woody was on the air, and I said, guys, I honestly think this could have possibly been the greatest sporting event in the history of Oklahoma. T-Dub, start wherever you want to start, um, and just give me your full you know view of what you saw today. You guys know when you get up Christmas morning when you're a kid and you have like 45 packages and like you have no idea which one to start on, so you just kind of dive head in first. I feel like that's exactly what this is. Every storyline that came from today was absolutely just picture-perfect Christmas morning present because one of the things that had gone on the last few days is we kind of been ripping the course a little bit and what how things could have been better. And literally, today was the best Sunday imaginable for the situation that we're in, and I, in not my wildest dreams, thought that Justin Thomas was going to be able to win this tournament from seven back. Um, I watched him his entire warm-up session this morning on the range, guys, and he, he looked pretty good, Woody, but there was still nothing there that made me say, you know, well, obviously, too, I thought he may be able to get to four or five under, but I didn't think four or five under was going to end up being the winning score. You had to, He had to have so much help make it down. So, you know, Woody, you, you were uh, obviously being able to watch uh, firsthand experience from the television, so kind of give us a uh, experience of what you saw um, from watching the tournament. Well, it, it, it was it was two things that I thought were really important coming down the stretch. And the one that Sam and his daddy and I didn't even talk about that I think was really important was having bones on the bag. Um, Absolutely. A hundred percent. I think they made I think I think Will Caddy, uh and Vito's caddy, I, I don't know those guys. Uh, but that caddy is really vital coming down that stretch in that those last few holes to keep that player, oh, for a better way of saying it, just in the zone or keeping focused. And I don't know what they were thinking hitting driver off 18, Beto. I, I just – that was a major mistake. Well, literally it was a major mistake. It, it might have cost him a major. And so, you know, uh, we didn't really – dive into that much and it 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 probably won't be a big storyline but for me as a golfer and you guys as a golfer I think you know what I'm talking about that's a that was critical coming down the stretch and I think the caddies the other guys caddies weren't quite up to that level of Bones McKay yeah I totally agree with that Woody that's a great point uh on Bones being on JT's bag let's go ahead and start with Will Zalatoris um because Willie Z to me T-Dub, the old, I know we keep beating a dead horse about it, but Willie Z's putting cost him this golf tournament. Even though he did make the clutch putts at 17 and 18 in regulation, 
the the guidey yippy stroke um, on 17 in the playoff T Dub that cost him the golf tournament and basically lost him the playoff. Um, and we could go through the start of his round as well. But what did you see from Will Zalatoris today, T Dub? Yeah, so from what I saw, just I watched him obviously this morning as well with JT and those guys warm up and I, I liked what I saw from him. I thought he was going to have a pretty good day just watching that. But yeah, exactly what you just mentioned. It seemed like that the putting stroke just broke down entirely, you know, being able to get done and finish and watch a little bit of the highlights. Saw the uh, three putt on 16 guys and that was just absolutely brutal. He had a chance to actually tie the lead at one point with Pereira before he even made the double. Had a chance to tie him. Then he hit it about four feet by. Then he just absolutely pull yanked his next one. You can see the stroke coming back and hesitating and taking it straight inside and just holding it almost kind of like a, a Hideki putting stroke in a sense, sitting there and pausing it. And that's not something I saw the first couple of days when he was gaining a, a close to three strokes putting on the field. So I don't know, guys. That seemed like to where it broke down for me. With him, and as you saw, I mean, those are the things that come back to bite him. And we, we mentioned on the radio show this morning the putts that he missed yesterday on the front nine in particular. Yep. And he ends up losing a damn playoff. So he hit the ball good enough to win this tournament by five or six shots, guys. Uh, but his putting on the weekend, in my, in my opinion, really let him down. By far the best week of the 2022 calendar year and made so many great lifelong memories that I will never be able to forget. And with the announcement from our very own Sam Humphreys not too long ago that Liv will be making a stop at Cedar Ridge Golf Club in Broken Arrow not too far away uh, from, from Southern Hills in Tulsa where the PJ Championship was, maybe we can have some very similar uh, stuff go on this year. So looking forward to, to not only the past that we had this last year but the future of 2023 and what it holds not just for our podcast but for golf in general and so for the last clip on our on our season recap show part one I it, this did occur after the PJ championship but for time purposes I wanted to include it here at the very end because it, it was by far my favorite personally interview that we did all year I got to go down and I played Dorna Kills with uh, Golf Oklahoma's very own Ken McLeod and I gotta say Mr. Ken's got a little bit of game now so don't uh, don't be sleeping on Ken if you ever get any scrambles with him but uh, we got around Dorna Kills and uh, I actually got to go out and walk the last three holes with the the guy who restored the golf course Tom Doak and uh, got to walk those three holes he was playing with uh, some of his family members and some people he works with and he was unbelievably kind to me and everyone in his group just I mean I was just some random guy out there walking, watching. It was actually probably kind of weird from their purposes, but uh, they were so nice to me. And uh, Tom gave some of his time after the round to uh, to give some of his insights on not just Dorna Kills, but uh, some of the courses that he's built and restored. And uh, for for me, at least in a past life, I know that I could be a golf course architect. Something I've always loved, just drawing holes on pieces of paper, doing things like that, or, or coming up with an 18 hole scheme that you want, or seeing a plot of land just driving on the highway saying, oh, I'd want to build a golf course there. Those are just things that run through my head. So I was able to pick Tom Doak's brain a little bit after walking uh, Dorna Kills that he just restored. It, it was an unbelievable honor for me. So here's just a little bit of our interview with, with Tom Doak. This interview occurred on June 8th. So, you know, just going out walking this course, most of us in Oklahoma going around here have played this course a hundred times, maybe even more, and I, I cannot believe the amount of changes that have been done here. So, kind of just take us, Tom, from the day that you walked on property, the first time you first saw it, compared to now, what all went into it, what all went through your head, and why does the course look now the way it does? Well, the first time I saw it was 40 years ago before they changed it. I just happened to drive through here when I was in college, seeing a few golf courses on my way back to school. And 
you know, I mean, I, I didn't know nearly as much about Perry Maxwell at that time, although that same trip was the first time I saw Perry Dunes in Southern Hills, so I got to know more about his work pretty fast. You know, this place was just this sleepy little town club. I, I don't even remember. I guess I knew that it was his first golf course is one of the reasons I stopped in, but the main reason was it was right on the highway, <laughs> right past where I was going. And, um, you know, I just thought it was a cool piece of land for golf. And then I knew... I knew that they had changed it and just torn up the greens and built all new greens. And, and that was kind of disturbing to me. I mean, I, I've seen, a, you know, when I, when I was traveling in college and after college, I would see tons of old golf courses like this that were really good golf courses. And they'd just been like tinkered with and changed to death. And it's like, why, why would somebody change that green? And why would, you know, why are you adding bunkers and moving bunkers around? Um, and, you know, back then, nobody thought about doing restorations kind of work at all. Right. Um, but we've been lucky to work on a bunch of good old courses that just, you know, when they asked us what they needed to do, it was like, well, stop, stop running some new direction and just, you know, don't make changes for tour pros because your members aren't tour pros and just get back to what made the golf course good in the first place. And, you know, I mean, when I started doing that 30 years ago at places like Garden City Golf Club and San Francisco Golf Club, they hadn't been torn up too bad. So it was, you know, we would do things slowly over time. But, you know, nowadays it's like if you can convince the club to do it at all, it's like, let's do this in one shot, close the golf course and get it fixed. Really, I mean, if you're going to change the greens, you have to close the golf course to change the greens. And then it's like, well, what are we going to do if we do it? Yeah. So anyway, a few years ago, I just I'd, I'd finished one of my books and I was doing an interview with somebody and they said, if you could restore any of these old golf courses you've seen, what would it be? And I said, there's two, Bel Air in California and Dorna Kills because it's Perry Maxwell's first course. And like five years ago, we I got a call. Somebody, somebody at Bel Air read that interview and asked me to come talk to him. And I didn't. I didn't make the comment because I was trying to get the job. I mean, they had another architect and they were they had been making changes going the other direction for years. So I didn't think they were going to hire me. And I, did, I didn't know that I knew anybody at Bel Air at all. But in fact, I knew a couple fairly important people there. So we wound up redoing that like five years ago. And, you know, great experience. And then here, you know, I always had the sense that you know, it's a small town place. They didn't have the money to do that kind of work, even if even if you could convince them it was the right thing to do. Right. So, uh, so I, you know, I said in that interview, you know, I'd do that for free. Um, so, like two years ago, just at the start of the pandemic, um, you know, we were supposed to be starting our new resort course in Wisconsin for Sand Valley, and they they just put the brakes on it with the with the pandemic just not knowing what was going to happen and, right yeah. you know what was that what would that mean for business it's actually been great for business there but uh, so we had nothing to do and then out of the blue i get a call from joe ward at dorna kills who's on the green committee he's like i read that art you know i read that interview with you a few years ago were you serious about you you consider doing work here for free and i was like yeah and i said like you know, you have to pay the guys that work for me, but, you know, I'll put in my time for free. And he said, well, we're, we, we got to put in a new irrigation system. So if there's any time to do anything, it's now. Um, 
you know, would you come down and take a look at it? And I said, yeah. And he said, how much do you think it would cost? And I said, I don't really know, but I, I mean, I think you've got to rebuild the greens because you, you changed them completely. And a Perry Maxwell course without Perry Maxwell greens is, is not, not a Perry Maxwell course. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, oh, oh, I didn't want to hear that because that's going to be expensive and the greens are in good shape right now. We, you know, we, we regrassed them a few years ago and they're looking real good. And I was like, yeah, well, I mean, so I came down and looked at it and, and they, they put me in the cart with an older member Brussy Westheimer and after you know after after a few holes he's he told me that his his grandfather was uh Perry Maxwell's brother-in-law but more than that Perry Maxwell's brother-in-law was like the uh project manager and shaper for a lot of his golf courses oh wow um Dean Woods and his brother the Woods brothers uh were kind of like Eric and Blake for me. They would go around and, and build things with Maxwell. You yeah. know, it was kind of like move the family. They, they, they moved the family to Chris, to Northern Michigan for two summers working on Crystal Downs where I'm a member. So, um, you know, once, you know, hearing Bruzzy talk about the golf course back in the old days and just, you know, getting a sense of, you know, I, I realized it was really important to him and that the thing actually might happen. Um, and and that's been part of the coolest experience of this is that, you know, uh, Maxwell's granddaughter who lives in Santa Fe was here last night for the the reopening thing, and it's just it's cool that the family is behind it. I mean, that's and that's why it happened. And you know, it's clear that that Perry Maxwell still has his imprint so much around Oklahoma golf. So, and obviously, you're a great architect yourself, d- d- designing Pacific Dunes, Terra 18, New Zealand, some of those other courses. So, when you get to a place like this and you're looking for a restoration, how much of it do you go from what the course used to be and what Perry designed to kind of what you have in your own taste and what you would like to see the course be? If you use the word restoration, you shouldn't be introducing too many of your own ideas. Um, you know, you're really, t- and you know, I mean, you, you have to take the word restoration with a grain of salt because we don't have, exi- you know, when, when clubs decide to, decided to blow up their greens 30, 40 years ago, they didn't make maps of what they were about to blow up. They think they're doing the right thing. So we don't really have all the information we want. We have like good aerial photos. So we know, you know, we know just how big that green was and what the shape of it was and where the bunkers were around it. But the actual 3D stuff, we're guessing a little bit you know that's just based on having seen some Maxwell courses and and the green site itself and like okay how would something fit in here and not be too severe and then the other part of it is you know a couple of these greens if I put them back exactly the way they were they wouldn't work I mean one of the reasons the club blew it up was that there were a couple of greens that just had a ton of back to front slope and if you were in the back you putted right off the front and down the hill 30-40 yards past which you know, because these greens were built in 1920 when the green speed was like five or six on the stimpeter. And, and they used to have sand greens. That's what they first originally Yes, had. the first three or four holes were just sand greens. Uh, so you can't, you know, if, even if I'd have had the exact plans, I probably would have had to modify it some so it works for, for the standards we use today. But, you know, I... I really want to put back as close as I can to exactly what's here because it was a very important course historically. And, you know, I, you know, my own first golf course is in, is in Traverse city and it's closed right now. And, you know, that would hurt more if I, if I hadn't got to 
go do a bunch of really famous golf courses in, in the interim. But I'm still, it's like, I live there. I want to see this thing restored. You know, we probably won't. Part of it's like a hops farm, and they're not going to tear that up. But I'm actually talking to a client now about, you know, restoring the most of the old back nine that didn't get torn up and adding another nine holes in there behind where it used to be and having an 18-hole golf course again. And that's like, you know, maybe that's my karma for having taken this on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, get yeah. to, I get to redo my own now. <laughs> well, that will be exhilarating, though. So now, Tom, t- just take us through because the first one and two are the you know obviously the first holes you play, and they're so much different than they used to be. So kind of take us through a couple holes. They don't have necessarily have to be holes one and two, but what are one or two holes that you got on? You said, "Well, I'm going to have to change this back to where it was because this is nothing like it was." So what what holes? Well, I mean, the- all of them, but you know, one and it, actually the first hole was the one that I didn't think there was any way they were going to let us restore because the the original first green is kind of in the back of what they've been using as driving range for years yeah and you know it just didn't seem like there was a safe way to do that um you know and i suggested well you know there was kind of a it it wasn't shaped like the old green but there was kind of a green back there and i said you know we could we could at least we could at least like build the old green and then maybe a couple days a year you just close the range and play to that green and you know the rest of the time it's a chipping green and stuff and you know that would really but you know still keep the old hole but that made it hard you know when they when they changed it 35 years ago they 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 straightened out the first hole and made it go longer along the lake and then the second hole you were playing the same green but from a completely different angle it wasn't you know it wasn't near as interesting a par three either and i i thought the second hole was was one of the ones that you saw like you know there if you're looking for pictures of Dorna Kills back in the day, like half the pictures you find are the second hole, partly because it's close. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, you know, and partly because it's the only hole that, you know, you're playing over a pond. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, after we talked about it for a while, they were like, well, we'll just, like, make the range irons only, and, you know, we'd like to restore that first hole. And and I was like, okay, I guess these guys, you know, so so one and two are back to the way they are, and two two is a great par three. And I think, one, you know, one is not, you know, be, you know, before we changed it, it was a 420-yard par four with water left on the second shot, so it was hard. And now it's kind of a dog-like right, and it's quite a bit shorter, but it's, you know, you can't miss the green to the right. The green just all tilts right to left, and if you if you miss it up on the right side, you're not getting that up and down. Now, take us through, I would be renounced if I didn't mention the fact that there used to be like a million trees on this course, and now there's like maybe five or six. So that's, that's an exaggeration, obviously, but still. So kind of take us through the process of just completely revamping what this course looks like off the tee box. Well, there's, you know, there's always members that just hate the idea of taking down any big tree. Um, and I understand that, and yet I also look at it like, you know, there's three things. One... It's really hard to grow good turf under, you know, in shade, especially like Bermuda grass just does not exist well with with shade. So when you've got fairways that somebody planted little trees 50 years ago and now it's really tree lined, it's hard to grow grass and it's hard to have the golf course in good shape. Uh, two, 
you know, this was an open farm when it was built, except for some of these oak, some of the oak trees down along the creek and stuff. And so, it, you know, if you look at the old pictures, it's hard to justify having all the trees. And three, um, you know, sitting up here at the clubhouse and looking, you know, the first time that the first time that I came here to, to sit on the patio, the clubhouse, or even the porch upstairs and look out toward the toward the green on 16 and 14, but the cliff there, it's really only 400 or 500 yards from here. Yeah. But you couldn't see it because all the trees. And it's like, God, you ought to be able to see that. Yeah. <laughs> so, and you ought to be able to see, you know, if, if, if they give me carte blanche, there's a couple more of these trees right here that I would take down just so you could see, like, you know, I can almost see the second green from here, but not quite. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, that's what this place felt like originally. Just that's why the clubhouse was here. You just had a big sweep, big, broad view of the whole golf course from here. Very nice. So then my last question, Tom, you had to pick one hole out here to be your favorite. What hole would you pick? Oh, I mean, you know, a bunch of these holes have really grown on me now that I'm more familiar with them. Like, I, I would say my favorite holes are the third hole, par four. That's one of the best greens that we worked on. Uh, the sixth hole, the par five coming back, I really like everything about that hole. Um, seven is a tricky short par four. Uh, ninth green really came out great. Um, but, you know, 14, the short par four is a cool hole. I, t I talked a lot with Mike Holder about that hole. He played, you know, he played high school golf here and he was just... He, he, he came down a couple times to, to help, and that was the hole that he spent the most time on because he was like, that was his favorite hole, and he wanted to make sure we got it right. <laughs> but, but, you know, 16 here is just, it should be world famous. I mean, there is no hole in the rest of golf that's, that's like that, and that is so rare to see a, a great golf hole. And, you know, I, I mean, I look at it like, well, I'd, I wish that was mine, but you, you couldn't copy that, you know, without without the cliff face at the angle that it's at, there's no way you could copy that anywhere else. No. So, and that's, you know, when you're a golf course designer, that's like, that's the ultimate success is when you build something that's like, yeah, this is, this, this fits this place perfect and nobody else is going to do this. Yeah. So Tom, what, just kind of take us through what, what's the next uh, few months, the next few years of, of your schedule look like? You got any projects coming up, any restorations, any new courses on the, on the rep, on the resume? Uh, the, I am out of the consulting and restoration business almost entirely to focus on new work. The only thing I'm, I've agreed to do is restore Crooked Stick because I worked for Pete Dye growing up and I spent some time there with him. And, you know, so that's it's kind of the same as here. That was his first great golf course. And, you know, if I can help him put, put back some of the little character of it, I'll, I'll help him. But, uh, you know, I've done 40 new golf courses in my life. It's like I should put a few more out there. And luckily right now it's like there are tons of people calling me. So I have like 10 or 12 new golf courses to build in the next five years. Wow. And yeah. I mean, I'm shocked that there's, you know, I mean, there's so much more interest in golf coming out of the pandemic. And there's, you know, there's so many more people relocating now in the country. People, people moving to, I mean, a lot of the calls have been from like Texas and Florida because, you know, people are moving from California and people are moving from New York and, yeah. and moving to those places. And there's not really that many great golf courses there. And, you know, it's like if you're a rich guy from New York and you're moving to Florida and you want to join a great golf course, you know, 
the only two or three that you want to join, there's no way you're getting in. Yeah, to exclusive. So, yeah, they're full, and and you know you'd be on a very long waiting list, and most of those kind of guys don't like to wait. So, no. so there's going to be a bunch of new golf courses built in those places. I had. I had five or six calls from Florida and five or six calls from Texas in the last year. And I just, you know, I've committed to doing a, one private club in Palm Beach area, a resort course in northern Florida, a private club about three hours west of here, actually, same from Dallas. And that will be like a national club in kind of kind of like Valley Neal kind of sand dune country. Very nice, yeah. And... Uh, and a resort course in Texas too. So I figure that's all I can do is, you know, when every single guy that calls you says, we want the best course in Texas, it's like, well, I can really only do that once or twice. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like Texas is a big state, but the so, best still only so has a certain place on the, on the main. I'll, I'll just have to pick which one I like the best. <laughs> uh, speaking of that, that's the last question I have for you. So, and this might be tough because, you know, they're kind of your babies, but what's the your favorite course that you designed and what's your favorite course that you didn't design? Uh, that's, you know, I don't even try to answer that question anymore because, you know, I've, I mean, when I did Pacific Dunes, that was such a beautiful piece of land, and I thought we did everything just the way we should. You know, it's like 20 years open now, and I haven't, the only thing we've ever done to it is, like, try to make make a few of the bunkers smaller or break them up so the sand doesn't blow out of them so much. Yeah. But everything else is just, like, just the way we built it. So so I thought at the time, it's like, well, I'm, you know, when, if I ever get this question, it's going to be an easy answer. Yeah. Nobody's ever going to think I did anything better than this. And, you know, I've had like six or eight or ten other projects that, that I kind of feel the same way about. Like if, you know, if that was the only golf course I ever built, I'd be perfectly happy with that. And, and I might have a couple more up my sleeve yet. Before we get out of here, I want to make sure to remind everyone to go check out our friends at Quope Creek Bank. Are you, are you tired of getting the runaround from the bank and credit union? Do you find it difficult to talk to a live person or get help when you need it? We'll look no, for, we'll look no further. Quote Creek Bank, your connection to better banking. It's a friendly, living human, human answers your phone Monday through Friday from 8.30 to 5 p.m. They also put you in touch with other friendly humans who are there to answer your questions. They help solve your problems and handle anything you need. It, make sure to give them a call today at 405-755-1000. That's 405 755 1,000 to experience the difference today. And I know what most of y'all are thinking that, that have just listened to, to these various clips that we played from our first half of the 2022 year from the 73rd. Hell, you're saying, guys, I mean, this is just unbelievable. The people that y'all have got to interview and the things y'all have gotten to do is top top echelon stuff. I mean, these guests, these interviews, these answers they're giving are spectacular. How is it going to be any better for part two? Well, guess what, guys? It is going to be better for part two. Part two will be coming out sometime around the start of the year, start of 2023, and we'll have all of our best moments from after the PGA Championship all the way from June to the end of the year. You don't want to miss that. It's going to be just as good, if not better, than than part one here. So I want to thank everyone who listened on the 73rd hole. Thankful for, for Sam Humphreys, Jim Woodward, and Colby Powell, who will have uh, his farewell speech, essentially, in uh, in our last part, part two. So you won't want to miss those things. We'll also have part of our interviews for with Taylor Gooch, Rian Gibson, Vince Gill, Mickey Tailton, Scott Verplank, Austin Eckroat, so many others coming up on part two. You don't want to miss that. So make sure to stay tuned here on the 73rd hole, the official podcast of Golf Oklahoma.